Hi everyone, today is September 19th, 2013. Uh, welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Ani Patel. He is an associate professor of psychology at Tufts University. His lab focuses on the neural bases and interrelationship between music and language. He's the author of Music, Language, and the Brain, which you can find through Oxford University Press. Hi, Ani. Hi. And around there, we've got like the super group of language and bird song. We've got um, one of our usuals, Todd Troyer. Hello. We've got Nicole Witcha. Hi. Hey, and then we've got a former guest who I encourage everyone to go back and listen to his um, podcast, which is really fun. We did that last year. Um, it's Bharat Chandrasekharan from UT Austin. Yes. And Hi. Bharat, you've got a couple of people here. Why don't you introduce yeah, them? So we've got two graduate students um, from uh, uh, UT Psychology, and they're interested in uh, music and neuroscience. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, Kirsten Hi. and Seth. Hi. Welcome. Okay, great. So, um, so I understand that neuroscience of music is sort of a newish field with many different aspects, uh, and, and you work on, on on many of them. But I want to focus first on some of the, um, since we've got this great group here, I want to um, focus on the cognitive overlap with um, human language processes. So, in your work, you've often drawn on the parallels between music and language to mine how the two are processed and maybe interrelated in terms of brain networks. Um, in fact, in an early paper, you showed that. Uh, I guess a language-specific ERP measure was sensitive to incongruities in the musical domain as well as in language. Um, so it's so tempting to just jump right at asking you. So is, is music just another motor language? Is it another kind of you know motor learning? Um, what's common? What's divergent? And sort of what are the the structure? Is it what are the commonalities in terms of um, things like structural elements, syntax, methods of acquisition, production, flexibility? Just your thoughts on this complexity. Yeah. Um, so I think. They're both very complicated systems with multi, multiple components, right? I mean, so in music, we can think of melody processing, rhythm processing, the processing of timbre or sound quality, you know, the emotional feelings we get when we listen to music, the memory. Um, and similarly with language, you know, language has prosodic structure, so rhythm and melody, it has syntactic structure. It, um, and music also has kind of a syntactic structure. So I, it, to, to begin to address their relationships, I think you have to break them down to their components and begin to look at specific relationships between components. Like so for example, you could ask, what is the rhythm of music? How does it resemble or relate to the rhythm of language? Okay, And then even within that, there are multiple components. So musical rhythm has multiple features. There's beat, there's grouping and phrasing. And so to take just one example, I think phrasing and rhythm in, in music and language have a lot in common. We break things into phrases and chunks. I think uh, the, the sort of grouping thing, that the perception of stress that some elements are more accented than others is common to music and language. Um, on the other hand, I think the beat, the notion of an underlying regular pulse that, that, that's periodic that in, we tap our feet to in music, say, nothing like that exists in language. And so I think that's a different kind of, of uh, involves different brain mechanisms. So it's sort of like peeling an onion. You have to keep going into deeper and deeper layers and get down to the, the subcomponents and see which of those subcomponents overlap and which don't, and then what is the kind of significance of that. So I want to differentiate, though, between speech and language here. Are we talking about language in, in, its, in the fullest sense, or are we talking about speech in terms of the motor aspect? Oh, I see what you mean. Because um, I confuse the two sometimes, yes, and I think yes, it's good yes. to make that distinction. Yes, no, it's an important distinction. Well, if you're talking about something like uh, grammatical processing, so processing of structural relationships, then I think we're talking about language because that exists whether you're doing sign language or 
spoken language, right, or written language. On the other hand, if you're talking about uh, rhythm and accent, I think that's an auditory, typically thought of as an auditory sort of thing. So um, I generally, when I think of music and language, I'm thinking of spoken language, which is our, you know, biologically natural form of language. We've invented other forms, written language, but I think that's the primary form we communicate with. Is there a difference in the in the neural domain between music learned in a motor context? Is, I'm, I'm not a musician, so I can't, I, I don't know even if I'm asking this correctly, um, versus music that's trained in just, in, do you have to produce music to be, to have it be learned? No, you can learn a lot about music just by listening. I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of learning that goes on through just listening. To, I mean, implicit learning, right? Learning the, the rules of the game, so to speak, of your musical tradition. So you can take a person who's never had a music lesson and bring them into the lab and show pretty readily and easily that they are sensitive to the kind of musical rules of their culture. You know, they can detect when there are notes and melodies that don't seem to belong there. They can detect when things seem to follow the patterns of their culture and when they don't, even with novel melodies. So it's not just that they've memorized something in the past. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of perceptual learning that music involves. But then for those that learn to play, there's a lot of, obviously, motor learning that's built on, on top of that. So some of Parrot's work um, has shown that musicians have um, an enhanced encoding of speech sounds in the auditory midbrain. You've come up with a potential why and how of the basis of that observed neuroplasticity in the form of of what you, I guess you called the opera hypothesis. Mm -hmm. um, could you introduce our listeners to this idea and kind of take us through the various elements? Sure. Um, maybe introduce us to some of, maybe, yeah, okay, maybe you should start. Kind of introduce <laughs> the world. I'm going to toss it over. Yeah. Sure. So um, I guess for the last decade, uh, there, there's been a number of uh, studies very, very comprehensively, systematically looking at uh, the non-musical advantages. So beyond the music domain, do musicians have an advantage, a neurobiological advantage? And uh, early studies showed a clear cortical advantage. So, uh, musicians were uh, showed enhanced processing of speech elements relative to non-musicians uh, at the level of the cortex. But the question always remained, uh, you know, is that driven by cognitive processes, so enhanced working memory or um, um functions beyond uh, speech. This sounds so much uh, like the bilingual advantage that we talked about, just drawing back upon my, is music just another language? I, I think that's, an, uh, that's a great uh, question to ask. You know, what, uh, is there a parallel here uh, in the study of uh, bilingualism um, and, uh, and musicianship advantage? And uh, interestingly, if you're both, uh, does that give you, uh, you know, a, a greater benefit? <laughs> um, but I think I think the interesting thing that uh, Annie touched on was, um, you know, some of these effects are even seen at really early uh, sensory processing centers, like uh, the auditory midbrain. Um, so you know, this is what we consider pre-attentive. So it's much before sound reaches uh, consciousness. So, um, and these advantages in better encoding of just basic sound patterns is seen really early on. So I think what was lacking um, was a theoretical framework. And that's why I think the opera hypothesis, you know, does a really good job. So let's talk about it. Connie. Oh, yeah. So it was inspired by uh, work that was looking at these midbrain responses to speech and finding um, that musicians were showing enhanced responses relative to non-musicians. And that really intrigued me. Um, and I began to think about why that would happen, uh, given that both music and speech are complicated sound systems and they have they both put significant demands on the on the brain. So why would musical training enhance the way the brain processes speech? It's also given the fact that if you're talking about instrument instrumental music, the sounds are very different, right? The sounds of a cello, the sounds of a voice are different. So um, 
I began to think about the hypotheses to account for this, and, and one of the things that struck me was the differences in the way uh, music and speech uh, treat. I started off by thinking about pitch. You know, pitch is an important part of speech and music. In speech, it determines the ups and downs of the voice can influence the meanings of sentences and words in certain languages. In music, it's the basis of melody. Um, but in thinking about this in more detail, it, it, I began to realize that in, in music, we the, the brain um, really depends on making very fine distinctions of pitch in order to perceive melodies. Um, but the difference between a C and a C sharp, for example, uh, is, a, is a 6% pitch change. Um, in speech, the pitch changes of that magnitude often are not that important for normal communication. We use pitch in language, but the pitch changes are often much larger, and even when they're there, they're often redundant cues that can help us recover the, some of the same things that those pitch changes are meant to signal. So the idea became that maybe music really demands more of your a nervous system than speech does in, in terms of processing pitch, so it made a greater precision of processing, so to speak. And then I began to generalize that and to think, what else does music demand of your brain in a way that's uh, more demanding than speech but draws on some similar neural mechanisms? So perhaps some aspects of rhythm and timing, perhaps some aspects of memory, of listening to and remembering sound patterns. And all these things together may set the stage for, the, for music to enhance the brain processing of speech because speech also uses those neural mechanisms. So the acronym itself presents the sort of five conditions yes. that are necessary for the plasticity to, right. to happen. So just, just quickly. Oh, okay, so yeah. o, o, OPERA stands for um, overlap in the neural circuits that process some shared feature of speech and music, like pitch processing, uh, precision, higher demands that music places on precision of processing uh, for those features, and then uh, emotion, repetition, and attention. The idea that if music puts demands on your nervous system to do high precision processing, but it does that in the context of, of strong emotion, uh, frequent repetition, and focused attention, all factors that we know uh, from basic neuroscience to promote neural plasticity. So um, one of the questions that I wonder about is, uh, so the, is this a unidirectional effect, or are there aspects of yeah. language that are more precise that yes. can improve... Music processing. That's a great question. In fact, there are people working on that. So um, uh, Gavin Biddleman, who's a researcher, has been working on whether or not speakers of tone languages process musical patterns better than speakers of non-tone languages. Because you might imagine speakers of tone languages have more complicated pitch patterns that they need to be. And tone languages, just to define Oh, uh, languages where the ch changing the tone of a syllable... Um, or the pitch pattern of a syllable can completely change the meaning of a word. So Mandarin Chinese is an example um, where the same syllable and you know, Brad should speak to this. He's done a lot of work on this. Um, why don't you talk about tone language briefly? Yes, so, um, so there uh, arguably uh, a majority of languages in the world are tone languages where uh, pitch changes within a syllable can change the meaning of the word. So we call this lexical pitch. Um, and so when um, the same uh, syllable, for example, ma, with uh, rising pitch contours, so ma, um, means a completely different word in Mandarin uh, um, relative to uh, ma with a level pitch con contrast, so ma. Um, and uh, this is not a distinction that's there in uh, non-tonal languages like, like English. So English uses pitch. It uses pitch very specifically for uh, intonation. So uh, the difference between a question and a statement, for example, can be marked by pitch, but it doesn't use it within the syllable to change uh, meaning. So a number of these studies have looked at cross-language differences between um, um, native English speakers processing pitch and native uh, um, Mandarin speakers processing pitch. And 
it, it, and the studies have also shown that musicians uh, who have never been exposed to um, uh, uh, to a tonal language seem to be better at, uh, at at neural processing of pitch contours. So, yeah, and getting back to Nicole's question, um, Bittleman had, had looked at tone language speakers versus speakers of non-tone languages and their perception of uh, they're processing musical sounds, and he found that to- uh, tone language speakers had some advantages. Their their midbrain responses to musical sounds were sharper, uh, you know, more faithfully represented the structure of the sound than uh, the non-musicians. So there does seem to be some traffic the other way, which sort of makes sense because it's the theory is not specifically tied to music. It's about how does doing something demanding in one domain that shares neural resources with language lead to advantages with language, or you could turn it around something that shared if language sometimes puts higher demands than um, music does the initiative advantage is going the other way. I'm also curious about um, sorry the 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 role of precision. I don't quite get. I mean, I understand yeah. that uh, if if something is more precise, you're more tuned to it. You have more definition in the way your neural system is, is yeah. sensitive to it. But why wouldn't just practicing the actual task improve it also? Why do you have to be more precise? Than, like if, you mean the so language why, task? Right. So why why isn't just practicing speech sounds rather than going into a music domain um, improve? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, there's no claim that practicing speech doesn't also enhance your mm-hmm. your processing of speech. In fact, mm-hmm. you might expect that it would if you really attend to speech sounds and, and you know. Uh, but it, I, it, I think it's surprising that practicing in music has this effect on speech right. sounds. But it's, it's not excluding the possibility that within domain it, and training can also have an effect. But I guess what, do you think that precision is meaningful, that it can actually be more effective? And, and if so, oh, you mean, why? do you think music can be more effective? Right. That, you know, if you say either way, if, 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 yeah. you know, if in this case in pitch, you have more precision in oh, music. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Does it add something to the learning experience that, that just uh, hearing the same sounds without that added precision? Well, yes. I think that the, the, the music pulls in these other components that I think uh, are known to drive neural plasticity, the emotion, I mean, mm-hmm. in particular, right? So if you learn to play a musical instrument, that, that's often associated with the, the strong emotions that music evokes, right? And then the emotional satisfaction of doing playing music well. And so uh, in terms of changing brain circuitry, I think that that strong connection to emotion may give music a leg up in some respects in terms of driving plastic changes in the brain than just kind of a language training, like a phoneme training exercise, which is you know inherently not that in- interesting or emotionally rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so in some sense, it seems like all of them are, are related in, this, in, a, in a basic way. You know, you have to do something uh, demanding and do it well, mm-hmm. right? And then it has to overlap with the task. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And all of the other things are the more demanding it is mm-hmm. and doing it well and mm-hmm. paying attention and caring and, mm-hmm. and having an emotional investment. Yeah. And some of the emotional things, whether that's – it's interesting whether that – some of the emotional aspects of music may may uh, make more of a difference in terms of repetition than anything else. Just right? getting you, you to repeat things. You just yeah. getting you to care and to do it, right? Yeah. In terms of uh, that, might be one of the the, the biggest advantages of yeah. music over over some training of some yeah. Uh, yeah. speech task that are you right. boring, right? Right. Well, yeah. I mean, there's the motivation. Music may give you the motivation, but also the reward. It's kind of right. you can conceptually decouple those, you know. Uh, and maybe those are slightly different things in the brain. Like it's this contrast I've heard about in people that do research on reward systems in the brain between wanting and liking. Mm-hmm. You know, that there are different brain systems, dopaminergic systems involved in wanting something. And then when you actually get it, the, the pleasurable reward of liking it um, activates the brain in a different way. Yeah, so that's one of the things I wanted to bring up is it seems like you have such a great um, 
it's such a rich, rich area for research because you have such a diversity in languages, right? And you have such a diversity in music and music styles and aspects mm-hmm. of things that, that do that. So, I don't know, whether click language speakers will be uh, you know, <laughs> emphasized better, you know, get more of an advantage from different kinds of music. And things like pitch perception is, yeah. the pitch perception like the tonal language within syllable pitch mm-hmm. type things, it's unclear that how much that's related to melody mm-hmm. versus things like uh, accent and intonation when you when you play, yeah, right, um, right, and attack and other kinds of things that are on a different time, time scale, scale. Are yeah. within mm-hmm. the hundreds of milliseconds versus something right. that stretches over uh, right. things which may be more related to working memory or longer phrasing and prosodic cues or yeah. intonation in English. Or, I mean, you have you can break down so many different aspects in both ways that you can mix, yes. mix and match and ask, actually look at what, right. what, uh, what actually transfers. Yeah, the time scale question is interesting, especially because, you know, melodies are pitch patterns that unfold over long time scales, you know, uh, much different from the tone of a, a single syllable in speech. So you could ask this, does melody perception, being a musician enhance your intonation perception specifically at that time scale, but more than just your local pitch processing? But again, does it have to be happening in the motor domain? Can, can, this just, can you just uh, be able to discriminate or do you have to be able to I produce? Think, I, I think. think you can probably get some of these effects, many of these effects through purely auditory training. So let's take an example. We know like uh, disc jockeys have to become extremely sensitive to the nuances of sound, right? But they don't ever learn to play an instrument unless you consider scratching and stuff playing an instrument. But they don't learn to play an instrument the same way that a, a violinist learns to play an instrument. But they develop very keen ears. And so you could ask, and there's emotion involved and repetition and attention. So you could ask, does doing that kind of perceptual training with music benefit speech processing? I, but I suspect it probably does because you're listening in a very nuanced way. You care about those details. You're, you're, you repeat them. You're emotionally engaged. Um, at the same time, there is research suggesting that actually closing the sensory motor loop uh, facilitates plasticity over and above just purely perceptual learning. That if you if you're producing something, then you're integrating, you're doing auditory motor integration, uh, that actually drives plasticity faster than just purely perceptual training. What about visual auditory? If you're watching symphonies, like a conductor. Oh, <laughs> right. oh if, you're, if you are <laughs> a conductor, you just are. Or if you, you know, somebody that's not actually doing the motor output, but you have two different senses. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. There's a study that actually shows uh, spatial enhancement in conductors uh, right, relative yeah. to other musicians. So. Mm-hmm. For attentional, uh, attentional demands. And, yeah. yeah. So I think yeah. it's specific to the kind of training that's been involved. Right. Yeah, but they haven't really talked about audiovisual integration in that sense. I think that was purely no. auditory. And I'm wondering if, yeah. if if it is an integration thing that's yeah. assisting. I mean, of course, the auditory motor is more of a direct pathway, right? Yeah. <laughs> connected. Yeah. But I wonder if you could also get some, at least Through even if it's smaller, if you had a visual motor, if you have two senses integrating information. Yeah. Like yeah. listening to music versus listening and watching a violinist play. Oh, I see. Just so listening it. versus listening and watching. Oh, that's interesting. Well, of course, when you learn a musical instrument, you are doing auto, audiovisual motor integration because mm-hmm. you have to see what Multiple you're doing values. as well. So yeah. that's a very Feel good point. It. Yeah, yeah. Unless you're blind. Unless you're blind. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess you still got the tactile. Yeah, 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 right. So you still have multiple I, modalities. I wanted to ask about this specific question about, you know, our definition in all these uh, neuroscientific studies we discussed of a musician. Mm. Um, and it seems to me that, that it is very narrowly defined. Mm-hmm. Uh, wonder if you had any comments on that. Yeah, that, that's a really good point. I mean... So you know, there have been plenty of studies comparing the, the brains of musicians to non-musicians or, 
brain responses. But of course, that dichotomizes the world into these two categories, when in fact, there's continuous variation between people that have had no musical training and, and experts, and there's all kinds of gradations in between. And so what people are moving towards now increasingly is trying to capture that variability, because that's actually a much richer way of looking at the data by measuring objectively musical skills using various batteries. Uh, you can also simply ask people how much training they have, but uh, there's a lot of interest in developing batteries. In fact, I just read a paper, uh, a new battery that was developed by Marcel Zentner in uh, York University called the PROMS, Profile of Musical Skills. And uh, this is exactly what he wanted to do, is develop a battery that would allow you to to really get a fine-grained range of musical aptitude. And he had these, great, these two great terms. He said, there are probably people out there that have really good music perception skills but have no training. He called those musical sleepers. <laughs> and he said, there's probably also people out there that are highly trained musically but are actually not that good. He called them sleeping musicians. <laughs> so, and there are also people who, I guess, who, who use, use music as a vocabulary to express themselves. Because yes. that's a very different thing than just being able to read and play. Yes, and then there's a whole issue of do you improvise? And that's, that's right. And that's a whole other level of skill. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a very important question. And we do have very little neuroscientific uh, uh, studies that have compared these different groups in you know, I'm asking this question specifically because uh, it's been increasingly difficult for us to find non-musicians uh, participants mm -hmm. as narrowly defined by, you know, three years of, no more than three years of musical, continuous musical training. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if part of what we're doing with these dichotomy is uh, testing this group that is is um, different somehow, so non-musicians, <laughs> not even survived three years of musical training. Um, so, we, you know, much of uh, our understanding of neural plasticity uh, driven by uh, music training, yeah. you know, uh, derives from comparing musicians with this group. Oh, interesting. Um, so, you know. Yeah, I, I think so it's, it's not the musicians that are different; it's the non-musicians. Yeah. <laughs> it's those non-musicians who who've been selected with this criteria. Uh, absolutely no experience. <laughs> or, huh? Yeah, yeah I mean, almost everybody has some because of just school. You get a little bit in school, mm -hmm. even if it's just once or twice a week of group singing or something, right? Yeah. But uh, <coughs> uh, I'm surprised that you're having trouble finding people with less than three years of musical training. Is that really true? I mean, you're. Yeah. Uh, well, Austin is a unique place too for uh, young musicians. Oh, you're in Austin. <laughs> so that's a capital. That's oh. cool, but more and more in the younger education. Um, area, you do have these, you know, uh, third through fifth grade, at least try an instrument, and then in sixth grade, you switch instruments or you do something. So yeah. um, usually around then is when uh, kids will start to uh, go into private lessons. So that's something else to look at, whether yeah. the context of their learning, if it's self-taught, as many musicians in Austin are, yeah. versus formal training, yes. university yes. training, yes. group classes. Yes. So I think that's an interesting area to look into, especially as we are trying to find some kind of definition of musician or non-musician yeah yeah a spectrum of musician right right it seems a lot more powerful if you could if you could operationalize musical skill mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and really have behavioral tests that are much more proximal to the questions yeah hand, yeah and test various particular kinds of skills right that are some are more musical and some are more speech and then they're close yeah. enough to relate mm -hmm. and right. break down the thing and even yeah. if it doesn't capture what it means to be musician it's probably for especially for the neuroscience stuff it's yes. much more relevant yep That's, um, yeah. and I don't yeah. you know I 
because it's a complicated task, right? So those those skills, there's a whole range of skills. Yes. And so it's easy to sweep it under the rug of mm-hmm. musicians and non-musicians. Yep. Right? Yeah, it was a, that's an easy place to start, but I think you're exactly right, and I think that's why <clears throat> Zentner has developed this battery and other people are de- developing batteries, is that they want to, you know, quantify this in a much more precise way. Okay, so speaking of quantification, so you're also looking at, like, the real, the causal link between music training and um, changes or benefits to pitch per- perception um, in cochlear implant patients. So right. can you, you want to talk, take us through that? That's well, new. Yeah, it's yeah. brand new. I, I mean, it's... Uh, we don't even really have any results yet. We've just tested a couple of participants. But the it's idea, a great model. Yeah, but it, it's kind of a neat model. So the, the question is, you know, cochlear implants, um, one of the persistent problems with that technology is hearing and noise. And, um, and you know, technology keeps improving, but, um, but not fast enough in terms of really solving this problem. And so there's a lot of interest in training. Um, auditory training to see if you can actually change the way the brain processes sound to increase speech perception and noise. And so we, um, partly because my work on the opera hypothesis, got interested in whether or not musical training can enhance um, pitch contour processing in cochlear implant users and whether or not that would lead to benefits in speech perception and noise because of um, what we know about the importance of pitch uh, modulations for pulling out a voice from background noise. So we begin, we've begun this study where we take cochlear implant users that don't play musical instruments and we give them really basic keyboard training, learning how to play simple musical scales over the course of a month. They just take a keyboard <coughs> home and do these exercises. And that's a great naive population because... Just by definition, most of them probably have never. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Sorry. Um, And then we test them pre and post on very standardized measures of uh, speech perception and noise, as well as prosody perception. And, you know, just two subjects so far. The results look encouraging, but I wouldn't want to bet on it yet until we get uh, quite a bit more data. Exciting. So, is there any, uh, this is kind of uh, in an orthogonal direction a little bit, goes back to Nicole's comment. Seems like. Maybe, especially for cochlear uh, implant patients, training and auditory visual kinds of things where you're partially uh, lip reading or reading a lot of cues with uh, communication would help a lot in mm-hmm. terms of synchronizing your auditory so perception mm. and getting practice on, mm-hmm. on anticipating and doing that yes. would be particularly helpful for that population yeah. uh, in that, you know, in those contexts. Yes. Um, yes. And I don't know. I mean, it interfaces a little bit with music, but well, like I said, it's kind of. Yeah, it's a it's sort of yeah. And your in your study, is, are they playing the music or are they hearing it? They're playing it. Playing yeah, it. and um, I should mention that the, the study is really being led by John Galvin at the House Research Institute in Los, Los Angeles, uh, and I'm collaborating with him. Um, we we got this started after I gave a talk there about the opera hypothesis, but I think your your point, Todd, is a very good one, which is. And, you know, this is a first study, so we're just comparing, we're just training. We don't have a control condition, but we really need to take cochlear implant patients and give them different kinds of training, like audiovisual training, like the kind you're talking about, and seeing, um, you know, which kinds of training seem the most beneficial, or maybe they're synergistic somehow mm-hmm. uh, in, in ways that we might not expect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to go back a little bit to what Todd was saying. This is, um, there are these huge differences not in language, but there are also huge differences in types of music. Yeah. And in the music domain, there are things that Western people, people who are used to Western music, can't even perceive in, yeah. the, in the other in the other forms of music. And yes. the same thing in language, we we don't really perceive those tonal changes if we don't speak a tonal language. Yeah. So and what I'm wondering, sort of getting back to what Todd was saying, is there 
when you see a benefit mm -hmm. from music training, mm -hmm. is it specifically for music that it, that is within the same domain as the language? Uh, uh, so, are Western languages more like Western music? Oh, um, oh, that's interesting. I think the musical instrument you play does matter a lot because you can imagine that the instrument you play shapes the demands you put on your nervous system, right? A violin puts a lot of premium on pitch precision, mm -hmm. uh, whereas drums maybe much less so, but much more on rhythm, right? So I think that's quite relevant. So um, I'm not sure in terms of the, the music you play whether it would affect one type of language more than another. I guess it depends. Like if, you, if your instrument is a very pitch-oriented instrument mm -hmm. and your language also makes a lot of use of pitch, like a tone language, mm -hmm. then maybe you, know, that you get more benefit than if you don't speak a tone language, mm -hmm. like that. It, uh, there was a report yesterday on NPR. There was like, they have a series right now going on about um, spiritual music. Yeah. Um, and it made me think about that because they were talking yesterday about this yeah. particular uh, Church of Christ somewhere, I don't know where, um, in Mississippi. Oh. And they use a steel guitar in their, in their um, yeah. services. Cool. And it was interesting what they were saying. That there, was, there was sort of uh, an emotion... Mm -hmm that you don't even need words on top of it. You can kind of understand what the music is saying. And so you were, you were mentioning how language has this extra layer of meaning, but I wonder if in some contexts language carries more meaning than in... Uh, sorry, what did I say? Music. Yeah. Like music can carry more meaning in some contexts than in others where you might get that similarity of multiple layers of information like uh, you do in language, that like you have huh. this... Uh, you know, sorrowful sound that yeah. sounds you know more spiritual than something else, or sure. more emotive. Yeah, no, I think music has rich layers of kind of emotional meaning. Uh -huh. Right, it just doesn't have the kind of referential semantic meaning. Okay. You can't point to specific things in the world and make propositions They're about them in the same way language can. But I had a question for you because you know, you, your your lab is involved in looking at bilingualism and the effects that that has on cognitive skills outside of language. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> So there's some parallels to what I'm thinking about with music. But are there any examples where bilingualism actually uh, has a cost in terms of cognitive processing for non-linguistic non things? Uh, for non-linguistic things? What were you just saying? Really? It was, was non-linguistic. Um, studies with speech and noise processing, something that you touched on in your uh, mm -hmm. talk, um, bilinguals showed deficits. Um, in speech and noise processing compared to monolinguals com com compared to monolinguals but um, the extent to which those deficits are auditory or linguistic um, huh. is unclear and this is despite the fact that uh, bilinguals have consistently been shown to have cognitive advantages mm -hmm. in the, the kind of skills that would be very beneficial to speech and noise processing huh. uh, better inhibitory skill right. so uh, you know when you're processing speech in challenging listening environments something you're doing is um, not, you're not only extracting what's relevant but you're also inhibiting what's irrelevant so it, it sounds like they should have a benefit but they don't that's really interesting so, may be, that may be uh, it's possible so some of that may be too peripheral to have access so if you're I don't know this is a off-the-wall hypothesis, right? So if you're bilingual, you have such a range of, you have a greater range of things and you can specialize less mm -hmm. in terms of your sensory periphery for the specific sounds that are that are useful for making uh, specific mm -hmm. distinctions. You have to make, you know, one and a half times as many distinctions mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the sound domain. And, and if it's a lot of the, the mm -hmm. processing and noise, it's really kind of pre-cognitive. Mm -hmm that you start to, when, when the noise is really high, you start to lose yeah, things. You can't pick a channel. Yeah. And, and my lab's been looking at whether uh, the auditory channel is less reliable, and so when you have an audiovisual situation 
which is the normal situation, right? Most conversations happen in an audiovisual environment. So when you have visual cues, that bilingual deficit seems to go away. Um, so, you know... Oh. Uh, so it's like filling in. Yeah, it's, it's filling in. And, oh. uh, and I think, I think our, our tests of speech and noise processing are very uh, unnatural in, 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 a, in a sense. They are very restricted to only the auditory moda- modality, only to specific words, um, mm. you know. So I think, I think that one way to move forward is to expand those tests to, um, to be, make it more naturalistic. Like competing voices as opposed to... Broadband noise. What we call informational masking versus energetic masking. Uh-huh. So masking at the periphery. So, you know, uh, a, a masker could be um, you, you're sitting in an airplane and listening to, to noise, mm-hmm. white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could you could be sitting in an airplane listening to white noise and somebody talking. Um, and, and, you know, it's a part of uh, mm-hmm. what you're trying to do is, um, is uh, eliminate uh, the mm-hmm. other to, uh, other mm-hmm. voice mm-hmm. Um, and the skills required for that seem to be different for the skills required to eliminate uh, white noise. noise so noise. which kinds of feature noise tests do bilinguals do worst on and then controls or non-bilinguals so this is again preliminary data with okay. uh, um, it, um, energetic masking so uh, under the conditions of background noise background broadband um, noise yeah okay. broadband noise that's not linguistic ah. um, bilinguals do worse but in linguistic but in linguistics noise? there are no differences between the two groups very interesting this supports my hypothesis <laughs> <laughs> now enter the field <laughs> Yeah, that's really interesting. It's cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is one, one addition is I, I don't really know of much uh, uh, disadvantages, but there are pretty clear, oh, yeah. like Karen Emery's work has shown that it's very specific to the, to what it is you're looking at. So similar to what you're saying, sort yeah. of refining yeah. what is this bilingual advantage, refining it to the skills that are being used. And in, in bimodal bilinguals, you don't get that bilingual advantage because there oh. isn't this in, inhibitory competition between oh. um, two languages in the same modality. Oh, so by, by bimodal, um, bimodal bilinguals mean, uh, ASL speakers or... People who or can uh, sign, have right? a spoken language and a sign language. Or sign language. So you're saying... So... Those types of bilinguals don't show hearing and noise deficits. Yeah, sorry, not the hearing and noise, but just this okay. general bilingual advantage is cognitive. Oh, they don't show those advantages? Are, they don't show them oh, okay. in the same way, but yeah. they show other kinds of advantages yeah. that are specialized yeah. for the types, uh, yeah. for what they, the skills that they're using. So right. face processing, yes. spatial information. Yes. And Neat. Well, it sounds like you should you should look at, at uh, ASL bilinguals to see if how their speech processing I think, I think that's a neat control yeah but, you know with, but talking about uh, the uh, linguistic benefits of musical training mm-hmm. I wonder if that could be a, a control that could be added to the kind of studies especially related to the overlap aspect of your hypothesis so what, what, a, what? a non um, uh, non auditory uh, uh, linguistic feature um, would you predict oh. a musician advantage? Oh, like detecting like how much they use visual cues? Gestural, gestural differences. Uh, so a sign at a phonemic level. Yeah. I don't know. It's very interesting. <laughs> uh, All right. Hot off the press. <laughs> Tune in soon for answers to these questions and more. This is cool. It's felt like a lab meeting. In some <laughs> mega, mega lab meeting. But this has been lots of fun. Thank you, Ani. Thank you, Parath. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, everyone. Todd. Uh, This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.